It's great to see all of you here today. Thank you for choosing to worship with us. And what a beautiful day the Lord has given to us today. So thankful uh, for the the beautiful weather in which we can gather uh, outdoors and and worship God. How many of you are grateful to be past 2020 and to have entered into the serene bliss of 2021? Yeah, it's already turning into uh, quite uh, a year, um, and I can't think of a better place for us to be as a congregation than in the book of, of Revelation. As I go to this uh, book uh, throughout every day of the week, it provides such helpful perspective uh, for me in these days in which we live And as we uh, continue in our study of the book of Revelation, I want to have you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter uh, 7, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17 in this uh, chapter. And the title of the message this morning is Saving Souls in Tumultuous Times. Saving Souls in Tumultuous Times. Times. In the last uh, 11 months, we have seen our world convulsing in ways that are tearing apart uh, what is left of the fabric of our society. We were confronted by the threat of COVID 19 last March, followed by shutdowns and by government mandates, and then followed by various forms of pushback and protest against those shutdowns and mandates. As spring gave way to summer of last year, we witnessed the killing of George Floyd in Minnesota, followed by explosions of unrest and violence and vandalism and riots and portions even of a couple cities being taken by protesters, followed by recriminations and deepening acrimony on every side. In some cities, we are witnessing police forces experiencing various layers of defunding, leaving citizens in those cities less protected than they were before. And then, after all of that, we had an election in November followed by charges of fraud, followed by court cases and the decisions of judges and political leaders, followed by millions of people being left feeling aggrieved and frustrated. The Democrat Party won both of the runoff Senate elections this past week, which means that they now have control of the White House and the Senate, and the House of Representatives. When the Senate convened on Wednesday um, of this past week to confirm the results of the presidential election, as you all know, protesters gathered in mass, and some of them breached the U.S. Capitol building, vandalizing the building and bringing injury to about 50 some odd people, and the death of, I believe it is five, and tremendous embarrassment for the United States and probably 
ushering in other consequences that we are only beginning to see. There are so many distressing things that are happening in our world today that some people may genuinely be asking, is God on the throne? Is he really sovereign over human affairs or are things a little bit out of control? Can God still achieve his saving purposes in this increasingly crazy world? Can God's redemptive purposes prosper in times such as these in which we find ourselves today? And if you are ever tempted to ask these questions in these uncertain days, then what you read in Revelation chapter 6 and in chapter 7 should put your heart at ease. Revelation 6 and 7 reveal to us a God who is absolutely sovereign over human affairs. Nothing happens apart from his sovereign allowance. And even the forces of catastrophe are under his control and governed by his sovereign will. And we're going to see in our passage today that God, even in times like that, has no trouble raising up servants and saving souls during the most tumultuous of times. If you think our present days are bad, imagine living in the future period of time when the events of Revelation 6 take place that we looked at last Sunday. Last week we saw how John looks into the future. He sees Jesus taking the scroll of human destiny from the hand of God This scroll we saw has seven seals on it. And last week we saw Jesus break those seals. He broke the first four seals which ushered in the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Bringing forth a conquering person, probably the Antichrist, followed by war, then famine, and then death to one-fourth of the world's population. Then Jesus broke the fifth seal where we saw martyred saints in heaven crying out for divine vengeance upon their killers. And now we realize that Christians are being martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. And God told them, just wait, my judgment is coming. Then Jesus broke the sixth seal, which resulted in a great earthquake the sun becoming blackened and the moon becoming like blood, meteorites falling from the sky to earth and the sky being split apart like a scroll and every mountain and every island being moved out of their place. We saw that these events, as we come to the end of Revelation 6, will leave everyone on earth with no doubt that there is a God in heaven, and that Jesus, the Lamb, is his Messiah. And we find men and women all over the world of every station of life. We find them at the end of the chapter in Revelation 6, hiding in caves and among the rocks and calling for the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the wrath of the enthroned God and the Lamb. And they will end the chapter by saying in verse 17, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able 
to stand. And that's where we left off last Sunday. John is looking into this future day, and he's writing down for us what he sees and, and, and what he hears. And this is the question that he hears people asking, who is able to stand in the face of God's wrath? And as Chuck Swindoll says, based strictly on the rapid-fire judgments that he had witnessed to this point, John might have reasonably concluded that the answer to that question was nobody, not one soul will be able to stand. Yet, we come into chapter 7 this morning and we learn that a countless multitude is rendered able to stand before God during this time. In fact, in Revelation 6:17, people say, who is able to stand? And you might want to mark that word, stand. And in verse 9 of Revelation 7, we will find the same word, stand, used when we're told about an uncountable multitude of people whom God has saved who are standing before the throne of God and experiencing his sweet and gentle protections and tender care. Revelation 7 is an amazing, a remarkable chapter, a chapter in which we see ample evidence that God is a saving God and that he delights to raise up servants and save souls even in the most dangerous and tumultuous of times. The way we're going to break down our study of this chapter this morning is we'll observe six developments, six developments in John's account of God's raising up servants and saving souls in the coming tribulation period. Six developments in John's account of God's raising up servants and saving souls in this coming tribulation period that he writes about here in Revelation. And the first development that we see is, number one, John sees angels protecting the earth until God's Jewish bondservants are sealed. John sees angels protecting or holding back harm from the earth until God's Jewish bondservants are sealed. Observe what happens beginning in verse 1. John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, that's from the east, having the seal of the living God. Probably he's brandishing a signet ring of, of sorts. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. There's a lot to catch our attention here in these first three verses. First of all, the fact that John begins verse 1 by saying after this indicates 
that at least some of what he's observing here in chapter 7 is probably occurring after the breaking of the sixth seal at the end of Revelation 6 and before the breaking of the seventh seal at the beginning of Revelation 8. As God, it seems, brings about a reprieve of sorts in order to seal a certain number of bond servants of his or slaves of his from among the Jews for himself before he resumes his judgments on the earth. Along these lines, John says in verse 1 that he sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, which would represent the four cardinal points of the compass north, east, and south and west and he sees them holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow and harm the earth and yet interestingly these very angels are described in verse 2 as the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea and you put both of those things together and it seems that God has indeed authorized these angels to harm the earth and the sea, but he's commanding them to hold off on inflicting that harm for a brief spell, having his angels say to them in verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. The fact that these persons are called bondservants of God probably indicates that they Many of them are already saved, and now God intends to put a seal on their foreheads. As for the physical nature and the look of this seal, we don't know what it is or what it's going to look like, but the angel says that they will be sealed on their foreheads, so we would imagine that this is a seal that would be visible in some way. And it will become clear as the book of Revelation continues that this visible seal on their foreheads stands in deliberate contrast to the later marking on the foreheads of those who will follow the beast, the Antichrist, in Revelation 13. We learn in Revelation 13 that the mark of the Antichrist will have something to do with the number 666, but this seal here in Revelation 7, will be something altogether different from that, clearly identifying these persons as bondservants of God and as followers of Christ. As for the meaning of this seal, it seems that it will serve as a sign of God's ownership and also of God's protection upon these individuals. Reading these words... In verses 1, 2, and 3 about these sealed ones leaves us with a great curiosity about their identity. And happily, that curiosity gets satisfied in the next few verses. This brings us to the second development in John's account of God's raising up servants and saving souls during this coming tribulation period. Number two, John hears the number of God's 144,000 Jewish bondservants who are sealed. He hears the number, the exact number, 
of these Jewish bond servants who are sealed. Observe what John says beginning in verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he says in verse 5, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And if you like math, you could take all of those 12,000 and add them up, and it equals what? 144,000, and John does that math for you. Now, a natural reading of these verses, verses 4 through 8, leads us, I think, to the conclusion that these sealed ones are Jews. That kind of leaks out from the verbiage here. In fact, John says that the number of those sealed is from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And I think we do well to take John at his word. Now, there there are interpreters, many of them, who suggest that we should take these verses as the church, as a figurative way of describing the church as the people of God who have taken up the inheritance of Israel But it sure seems to me that John is going out of his way to tell us that these are Jews. I agree with Charles Ryrie when he says that if language is to be understood normally, the list here is of 144,000 Jews of the 12 tribes that are identified. Now, there are some people that are reluctant to take these verses literally and There's some complex reasons uh, for that. One of the reasons that some state is because of the conventional wisdom that the ten tribes of Israel uh, from the northern kingdom were lost after Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 B.C. And because even those today who know that they are Jews, they don't know what tribe they are from. But I don't really see that as a problem at all. All we need to know is that the members of these 12 tribes are not lost to God. He knows who they are and where the descendants from each of these tribes are on earth right now. And according to this passage, he's going to seal 12,000 persons from each of these tribes And perhaps even with this sealing, inform them of what tribe they are actually from. That said, there there are some notable items about this list of tribes that catch our eye. And let's take just a couple minutes on this. 
First of all, it is noteworthy that the tribe of Judah appears first on this list rather than Reuben, who was the oldest brother. Judah, no doubt, is appearing first here because Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, as he is described in Revelation 5, is from this tribe of Judah. Another notable item in this list is that the tribe of Levi shows up in this list, whereas Levi does not show up in the Old Testament in any list that you find that deals with allotment of land in the land of Israel. But Levi showing up in a list like this is not unprecedented, and it should not be surprising to us because this is not about allotment of land. Though Levi was not given its own exclusive territory in Israel, Levi was entrusted with the spiritual leadership of the people of Israel. Uh, So it makes sense that the tribe of Levi would be included here. Another thing we notice that commentators talk about regarding this list is that the tribe of Dan does not show up anywhere in this list. This is not unprecedented either. In 1 Chronicles chapters 4 through 7, we find Levi listed among the tribes of Israel, and the tribe of Dan is left out. Now, some speculate that the reason for Dan's exclusion from this list here in Revelation 7 is the fact that the tribe of Dan was often guilty of idolatry. Throughout Israel's history, still others suggest that because Dan was such a small tribe, it is lumped together with the larger tribe of Naphtali, who was Dan's brother through their same mother, Bilhah. Still others point to a very ancient belief, guys, even before the Christian era, that the Antichrist would come from the tribe of Dan. Whatever the reason. And I don't know, but whatever the reason for Dan's exclusion from this list is, we should not take it to mean that God is done with the tribe of Dan. Ezekiel chapter 48 is describing life in the millennial kingdom and describes what the allotment of land will be during the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth, and the tribe of Dan is actually mentioned first as a tribe that will have a portion of land allotted to it. Another notable thing about this list is that the tribe of Joseph is mentioned. I don't know if you noticed that. It's mentioned rather than the tribe of Ephraim, but this should not be too surprising to us given the fact that Ephraim was the son that of Joseph that Jacob gave the greater blessing to over his brother Manasseh. So here in Revelation 7, we have the tribe of Manasseh that's mentioned in verse 6 and the tribe of Joseph mentioned in verse 8, which is actually, as we would understand it, the tribe of Ephraim that is carrying the honor of bearing Joseph's name. All in all, according to these verses, 12,000 persons from each of these tribes will be sealed by God on their foreheads. As for what these 144,000 persons will do, all we know is that God 
puts a seal on their foreheads and that they are his slaves, his bondservants, which means that they must have work to do that God wants them to accomplish during this tribulation period. This task is almost certainly the task of evangelism, which will probably make these 144,000 persons the greatest missionary force for the gospel that the world has ever seen. We learn more actually about the 144,000 in Revelation 14. In Revelation 14:4, they are described as those who have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, probably indicating that it's through the testimony of these 144,000 that a greater harvest of of Jews and even Gentile souls will come to faith in Christ. We also learn in Revelation 14 that this group are those who had been purchased from the earth, verse 3, as those who had kept themselves chaste and who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's verse 4 of Revelation 14. And about these 144,000 it is said in Revelation 14:5 that no lie was found in their mouth, for they are blameless. So these are pretty studly followers of Jesus who will make up this group of sealed evangelists carrying the gospel message throughout the world and representing the cause of Christ during this tribulation period. At the very moment, when people the world over are trying to hide from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb and they're asking who is able to stand, these 144,000 will be declaring the gospel and telling people how they can stand before this great God who sits on the throne and this Lamb whose wrath has come. If they believe in Jesus and they call upon His name and find refuge in Him, they can stand. This is no doubt a significant part of what these 144,000 will do at this point of the tribulation. And it seems that the gospel witness of these 144,000 will have tremendous effect throughout not just Israel, but all the nations of the world. And this brings us to the third development in John's account of God's raising up servants and saving souls during the coming tribulation period. Number three, John sees a great multitude from all the nations before God's throne. John sees a great multitude from all nations before God's throne. Now keep in mind John has just spoken about 144,000 people from the 12 tribes of Israel being sealed by God. Yet observe what John now says beginning in verse 9. He says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. How big is this group? John doesn't merely describe them as a multitude, but as a great 
multitude. And if that wasn't enough, he says that this great multitude is so great that the number was such that no one could count. So this is clearly, I think, a different group than the one he just counted for us in verses 4 through 8. And I emphasize this because there are commentators who say that these two are the same groups. The 144,000 and now this group, it's the same group being looked at from a different vantage point. But John seems to be making a distinction. This is a group that no one could count as opposed to the earlier group that he did count. As for who this multitude consists of, John told us that the 144,000 are from the 12 tribes of Israel, but he tells us here regarding this innumerable multitude that they are from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. So among these saved ones, no doubt, would be additional Jews from the various tribes of Israel beyond the 144,000 sealed ones along with many others coming from all the nations of the earth. And guys, this great multitude that John is looking at, they're not just people from some nations and some tribes and peoples and tongues, but look what he says, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues or languages. This means that by this point, of the tribulation period, the gospel will have reached every people group on earth around the globe, resulting in the salvation of at least some people from every single nation and tribe and people and tongue. But when you look closely at what we've just read you see that more than just the salvation of this multitude is indicated here. When you look at John's description here, this innumerable multitude is not on earth, right? But John tells us in verse 9 that they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The 144,000 were on the earth. That's why God told the angels, don't let the winds be unleashed until I've sealed them. But this group is standing before the throne and before the Lamb, which means that they are in heaven, which means that they have died. And here we find them on the other side of death, verse 9, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. They're dressed in long white Robes, which represent dignity and celebration and righteousness. And they have palm branches in their hands, which represents their triumph and their readiness to rejoice in their triumph and to worship God. And that's exactly what happens in verses 10 through 12, which leads us to the fourth development in John's account of God's raising up servants and saving souls during the tribulation period. Number four, John hears this great multitude worshiping God. John hears this great multitude worshiping God. Observe what John says that this great multitude does beginning in verse 10. He says, and they cry out 
with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice that John tells us that they cry out with what kind of voice? A loud voice. Once again, we're reminded that in the book of Revelation, almost everything is loud and everyone speaks loudly. And we see this innumerable multitude worshiping loudly too. We also see here in verse 10 that they give God all the glory for their salvation as they cry out loudly when they say salvation to our God. And think about that. What does that mean? You're looking at God and you say salvation to God. What does that mean? We would normally think of it as salvation to us, right? Because we're the ones who need it. God does not need to experience salvation. So what do they mean when they say salvation to God? What they're really saying is, may all the credit and all the glory for our salvation redound to God. All the glory for our salvation should go to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And may all the good that this saving of us has wrought be laid at the feet of God and his Lamb. That's what they're saying. And, interestingly, the worship of this vast multitude is so compelling that every angel in heaven feels compelled to join in and say amen. In verse 11, John says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. In other words, these angels are saying amen to what these saints are saying when they say salvation to God and to the Lamb. Amen to what these saints are saying when they express their desire that all the credit and all the glory and all the good of their salvation redound to God and to the Lamb. And then these angels actually enumerate what these things are, saying blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. If you took salvation and imagine it as an egg and crack that egg open, these seven things spill out. These are things that redound to us They're part of the good we enjoy as saved ones of God. And the angels are saying and agreeing with these saints and saying, may all of these things redound back to God. Notice how what these angels say begins with an amen and ends with an amen. Which makes what they say here, I guess we can call an amen sandwich with a whole lot of good stuff in between those amens and saying blessing and glory and wisdom 
and thanksgiving and honor and power and might, they're identifying seven elements of good that come to believers upon being saved by God. And these angels are joining these saints and expressing their desire that all of these things be offered back to God. Not just now in this moment, but they say forever and not just forever, but forever and ever, they say. And then at the end of verse 12, they say amen. And notice that they don't say amen and a woman. Like Representative Emanuel Cleaver did this past week when he opened the 117th Congress in prayer, ending his prayer by saying, Amen, and a woman. These angels just say, Amen, which has nothing to do with gender, by the way. It's just a word that means truly, or so be it. I want you to ponder just these angels saying amen to what they heard these saints saying as they worship God. I wouldn't be surprised if angels are saying amen when they hear us worshiping and praising God. Let that encourage you. It always, I know it encourages me when I'm preaching and someone says amen. It tells me I said something right. Maybe um, it's always encouraging and, and I just want you to Receive that encouragement that even when you're by yourself and you're worshiping the Lord, giving praise to him, that whatever angels of God are present and hearing that, whatever angels of God are gathered with us here that we can't see, they, in their hearts and with their tongues, they're saying amen to us as we extol our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. At this point... John is witnessing all this, and no doubt he's amazed, but he doesn't know yet who this multitude is, but he's going to find out in just a moment, which leads us to the fifth development in John's account of God's raising up servants and saving souls during the coming tribulation period. Number five, John learns that this multitude has come out of the great tribulation. John learns that this multitude has come out of the great tribulation. Listen to what John says happens in verse 13. He says, Then one of the elders, so this is one of the 24 elders that was seated around the throne of God that we got introduced to back in chapter 4. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? He's talking to John and asking John this question. This elder was probably a master teacher when he was on earth because he knows how to teach. He asked John two questions, creating in John a thirst to know the answers to those questions before he then tells him the answer. So this elder speaks to John and asks him two questions. These who are clothed in white robes, John, who are they? Where have they come from? And John isn't even willing to hazard a guess. He's already observed 
that they seem to be human beings who have come from every tribe and tongue and people and nation because that's how he's already described them, which means that something of the ethnic differences were observable to him as he looked upon them in heaven. But as for who exactly they are and the time period from which they have come, John doesn't know. So in verse 14, John writes, I said to him, my Lord, you know. John is saying, why are you asking me? I don't know, but I know that you know. And John continues in verse 14 with these words. And he, this elder, said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Notice the language the elder uses to describe these saints. Literally, the elder says these are the ones who are coming, present tense, out of the great tribulation, probably indicating that they're still coming as he speaks. Evidently, these are saints who were inside the great tribulation, but they have come forth out of the great tribulation, a reference to these individuals dying during the seven-year tribulation period, especially the second half, which is what is properly called the Great Tribulation. You might want to write down the reference, Matthew 24, 21, where Jesus speaks of something that will happen at the midpoint of the tribulation and speak of what follows as the Great Tribulation. Now, how did they make it out of the Great Tribulation and find themselves before the throne of God in white robes? The elder says... They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. John had heard about or saw people hiding among the rocks saying, Hide us from the wrath of God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb for the day of their wrath has come. And yet now here's an uncountable multitude in heaven. How did that happen? Here's how it happened, the elder says. These individuals have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's why they're in heaven, standing before the throne of God. In normal life, guys, you all know this, you don't wash a garment in blood in order to make it white. Right? But here we see that the blood of Christ has power to make anything white There is cleansing power in the blood of the Lamb. And this elder is saying that this multitude of people had at some point come to Jesus with their robes that were filthy with sin. And they got their robes washed with the blood of the Lamb that was shed for them at the cross. And their robes, as a result, were left perfectly white from that washing in the blood of the Lamb And their lives and their robes, though once filthy with sin, are now whiter than snow. And here they are standing before God with these white robes, blood-washed robes, because of Jesus' blood. And if you're here this morning and you have never come to Jesus and experienced this cleansing through his shed blood that was shed 
for sinners at the cross. You can do that today. Come to the cross. Look to Jesus. Believe in him. Call upon his name. And you can be cleansed of your sins just as this multitude was. You say, well, you don't know how bad my sins are. (laughs) Maybe I don't, but you don't know how powerful Jesus' blood is. And your sins are no match for his blood. And he can wash you clean if you're willing to humble yourself and confess your sins to him and obtain the cleansing through his blood that only he can give. That's what this multitude did. All in all, John is right now learning that this innumerable multitude are those who have been brought to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. They've experienced salvation and cleansing through his blood, and then they have died and been taken to heaven after their death. Commentators suggest that many of them may have died as a result of the horrible judgments that follow that come upon the earth and perhaps believers get swept up in these judgments nonetheless they go to heaven when they die almost certainly many of this innumerable multitude would have died a martyr's death at the hands of the antichrist and his emissaries we learn in revelation chapter 12 verse 11 that these saints They're described as ones who did not love their life even to death, likely indicating that many of them stayed true to Christ, loving him more than they loved their own lives. And they continued faithfully believing in Christ all the way to their dying breath, knowing that it would cost them their life. And yet, wonderfully, yes, they die, but death could not separate these saints from God. In fact, all death ended up doing is bringing them even closer to God. And this leads us to the final development in John's account of God's raising up servants and saving souls during this coming tribulation period. Number six, John is told about the heavenly life of these tribulation saints. We actually, guys, in these verses that conclude the chapter, we get to see something of how these saints live in heaven. And we're all the richer for having this glimpse. Observe what this elder who is speaking to John says as he continues to speak about these saints who have been brought out of the great tribulation and are now in heaven. Beginning in verse 15, he says, For this reason, what is that reason? The reason is because they have made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb that was shed for them at the cross. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. These are wonderful blessings that are listed here. 
And all these wonderful blessings come to these saints because they wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And as a result of this one fact, look at the blessings they now enjoy in the presence of God in heaven. The elder tells John in verse 15, they are before the throne of God. Meaning they get to behold God's throne. Even where we live here, there's certain mountains I can just go out and stand on my front lawn and there's mountains that I can see. They're always in view. These individuals, wherever they live and abide, will always have a view of the throne of God in heaven. They are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And notice that word serve, which speaks of the service of worship. Yes, these saints are in heaven and there is a sense in which they are at rest in heaven. But that rest doesn't mean that they have nothing to do. Now they get to serve God in unhindered fullness, worshiping him to their heart's content, each of them having different roles assigned to them by God. They are before the throne of God, living under God's gaze and enjoying the fullness of his countenance toward them as they serve him in his temple. What temple is that? The temple is heaven itself, which is where God dwells. As for how God will care for them and Love them. This elder says, he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. We could literally translate the Greek here in this way. He will dwell over them. He will dwell over them. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle housed the special presence of God. And here we have this beautiful expression which speaks of God tabernacling his presence over them so as to bring them under his shelter and envelop them with his loving and doting presence, the way a loving parent would hover over their children. And the result of his loving care over them is that, verse 16, they will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore. And, guys, this does not mean that their appetite for food and for drink is eliminated. Because we know from many passages in the New Testament that people are going to feast in heaven. It's going to be a place of great feasting, of eating and drinking for all of eternity. What this expression means is that God will be so attentive to these saints and so swift to provide for them in heaven that they will never be without food long enough or drink long enough to ever experience a single pang of hunger or thirst again for all of eternity. That's how attentive God will be to these saints who are in heaven. The elder continues to describe their blessed state and says, nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat. They're never going to experience the slightest discomfort ever again. And I want you to notice, guys, the words no longer and anymore in verse 16, where the elder says they will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore. Such language implies that these saints have endured conditions in which they did experience unsatisfied hunger 
and thirst and experience the sun and its heat beating down on them. And this elder is saying God will no longer allow them to experience anything of the sort. The reason they will be so protected and provided for and blessed is stated by this elder in verse 17. The elder says, for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. The lamb will be seated with his father on his throne. We know Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And from that position, he has full might to do as he pleases and has all of the resources of heaven behind him. And this elder is saying that the lamb will be their shepherd. Jesus was their shepherd on earth. He's going to continue to be their shepherd in heaven. And being shepherded by Jesus in heaven, they're truly going to say, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall never want for all of eternity. By the way, notice the surprising terminology here. Jesus is called the lamb Yet at the same time, he's called their shepherd. He's the lamb shepherd of these precious tribulation sheep whom he has saved. He is the shepherd who will lead them and love them and provide for them and protect them through all of eternity. And as their shepherd, this elder tells John that he will guide them, verse 17, to the springs of the water of life. And notice that word is plural there, springs. This is not just one spring, but many. For all of eternity, Jesus will be leading his saints to different springs from which they can draw and refresh themselves. And these springs have the water of life to sustain and refresh and bring joy to them. These springs will never run dry, which is part of why these saints will never hunger And never thirst again. These are saints who have walked through the valley of suffering. And the tears of the great tribulation. Who were not even able to buy or sell on earth. Because they didn't have the mark of the beast. And we'll learn about that later in Revelation 13, 17. But now they are with their shepherd in heaven. And they're never going to suffer pain or lack ever again. And just as wonderfully, this elder is talking to John and concludes in verse 17 by saying, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Such a statement implies that these saints suffered greatly and they died with tears in their eyes from whatever suffering they had to endure. And this elder is telling John that God himself is going to wipe every tear of their former suffering from their eyes. Not just some tears, but every tear. And by the way, this isn't just true for tribulation saints. According to Revelation 21.4, we see that it's true for every saint where this same expression is found. Every pain, every sorrow that we ever experience is duly noted by God. And these sorrows, when we enter into glory, will be reversed and turned into joy. Heaven, once attained for the Christian, will work backwards and turn our deepest agonies into glory. And we will never, once in heaven, shed another tear again. Imagine what that's going to be like. 
living for trillions upon trillions of years in heaven, and there's never anything to cry about. That will be the lot of these precious saints who come out of the great tribulation. And the same will be true for every saint of every age as well. And in that future day, we will all look back and say, any suffering we ever experienced during our brief span of life here on earth was so worth it for our Lord. This chapter that we've looked at this morning provides us such a beautiful picture of God above all who occupies himself with saving souls all the way to the very end of history, up to the very last minute. At our present moment in history, in this age of grace that we are in right now, we all know that God is in the business of bringing sinners to himself and saving souls. But we learn here in this chapter that even during the tribulation period, when God's wrath is literally being poured out upon the earth, justly so, he will still be saving souls all over the globe, saving people of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Why does God do this? It's just who he is. God is a great savior. Saving souls is his addiction. Even during the tribulation, he's going to be saving so many people that no one will be able to count those whom he will save. When I read Revelation 6 and 7, I'm I'm struck both by the contrast between chapter 6 and chapter 7, and I'm struck by the infinite bandwidth of God to display his wrath and lavish his love so fervently at the same time. In chapter 6, we see God pouring out his wrath upon the earth with such ferocity that everyone is hiding in caves and among the rocks and asking for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them because in their minds that's a better fate than to face the wrath of God and the Lamb. And yet here in Revelation 7 we see this same enthroned God and same Lamb doting tenderly on those who belong to them giving them a place to stand before them in heaven. God wipes away every tear from their eyes and provides for them with such tender and attentive care, with Jesus shepherding them and leading them to heavenly springs to drink from. How fierce is God in his fury toward the proud and the wicked, yet how tender this same God is toward those who are willing to get themselves washed in the blood of the Lamb. The question for you, for all of us this morning, is what will be your experience? Will you be the recipient of God's wrath for your sins, or will you be the recipient of his tender love for all of eternity? The thing that makes the difference is what you do with Jesus. What you do with Jesus. We also see in this chapter that God is raising up 144,000 slaves to carry out his mission during this unique tribulation period. 
And whoever these 144,000 Jews are, you can be sure that they won't be sitting around bemoaning how much better the world used to be. They won't be wishing that they had been born in an easier time. And they won't be sitting around thinking that, I guess it's the tribulation period and God can't do much during such a tumultuous time. No, they're going to realize that they were born for a time such as this. And they will serve God and do what he has sealed them to do. And they're going to make a mighty difference for God during the dark days in which they live. And guys, the same is true for you and for me. The times in which we live are looking more and more daunting. But you should trust God's sovereignty and realize that he brought you into existence and saved you for such a time as this. If you are a parent, don't feel bad about having children and bringing them into such a broken world, bringing them into such tumultuous times. God has given you children so that you can now do the hard work of bringing them up in the nurture and discipline of the Lord and raise them to be bondservants of God who will serve his purposes in a time such as this. If you're a young person here this morning, don't bemoan the fact that you are coming of age in a time such as this. No, this is your time. This is your time. God made you for this time. He had you be born at this time in history. And if you know him, he saved you for this time. He made you his bondservant for this time. And now you need to embrace that calling and live like that is true. And that ought to affect the way that you live each day. As the poet says, you are not here to play to dream, to drift. You have work to do and loads to lift. Shun not the struggle. Face it. Tis God's gift. And that's your calling and it's mine too. And if we die a martyr's death, as many of these tribulation saints did, that's okay. Our death will only usher us into the presence of God and the Lamb, and he'll be there to wipe away every tear from our eyes and lead us to springs of the waters of life, and we will never hunger or thirst ever again. Whatever we do, guys, let's not believe the lie that God can't save souls and that God can't work in mighty ways during these days that we are living in right now, days which are honestly nothing compared to what the world is going to face during this coming tribulation period. If God can raise up faithful servants, then he can do so now. If he can save innumerable souls, then he can do so now. And that's why we as a church are here in the city of Riverside. These days in which we live are days that this church was made for. This is our hour to shine the light for Christ and to hold his name high, to tell people the good news of what he has done so that they might 
be cleansed of their sins and saved and to call them to faith in Christ and then to teach them all things that Christ has commanded us. As Christians, we, we have the same God that we had three months ago before the November election. He's sitting on the same throne that he was sitting on three months ago. We have the same gospel and the same Holy Spirit to empower our lives and our witness. And we have the same calling that the church has always had for the last 2,000 years to tell people about a kingdom that is not of this world and to point them to a king, a ruler who will never let them down, a king who will never be outwitted by his enemies or unseated from his throne, a savior who delights to save sinners who call upon him by faith and who delights to use people such as you and me. That's a ruler worth living for. And that's a ruler worth dying for. That's a ruler worth pointing others to. That's a ruler worth carrying the banner for. And that's a ruler whose coming, whose second coming is worth longing for. Amen? Let's pray and ask God to help us to live up to this call. Lord, we we come before you just um, in all honesty, feeling the weight of of the events of this past week. I know after watching what I watched on Wednesday, I just I felt something break inside of me, and I I just couldn't shake. Uh, this feeling of sorrow and and foreboding and this chapter it was like perfectly timed for me and I trust that it's perfectly timed for all of us Lord there's a lot to distract us all lot of good things even to distract us all many causes to fight for and to speak into may our hearts be seized with Jesus Christ and making him known because this is our world's greatest need And if that makes us like the Apostle Paul who said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that's okay. He is the Savior we need. He is the Savior that our world needs. The message of salvation through him is the message that needs to be declared, and it is the only hope. And I pray that you would help us as a church to stay on mission and to hold the name of Jesus high, to carry no other banner, 
other than his banner. And to love him more than we love our own lives. And help us as a church not to play, to dream, to drift. We've got work to do. We've got loads to lift. We've got a message to deliver. And I pray that you would help each of us to do our part. Embracing the fact that you have brought each of us into existence. You've saved us for a time such as this. And as Queen Esther did in her day, may each of us rise to the occasion and be the bond servants that you've called us to be in this exact time. I pray that for myself. I pray that for all of my brothers and sisters. I pray that for us as a church and for every other Bible-believing church in this city, in this state, in this country, and around the world. And I ask all of these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen.